0: All right, if you have a Bible, open it up to the Gospel of Matthew. You'll also be turning to Mark. You'll also be turning to Luke. we just have Matthew open. If you have a Bible dictionary, have it nearby, because we have a lot to do. All right, here we go. This week, all week, well, not just this week. I I may take that back. For the next six to eight weeks, for the Bible study exercise, it's all Matthew 24, Matthew 24, Matthew 24, Matthew 24. And one of the reasons we're spending so much time on it is the Bible study curriculum spends, I, don't, I haven't looked exactly how many, lessons, how many sessions they do for it, but it's going to be a number. We started a week early uh, because we're actually supposed to be doing a special focus for this week, but I skipped it and went to the Matthew 24, only because Matthew 24 is filled with lots of difficulty and complications. Let me just read some of the complications that it's talked about in a book called The Last Days According to Jesus, all right? Um, On page 29 of this book, I believe it's 29, they say this, what did Jesus teach on Mount Olivet? Just go ahead and write down the phrase Mount Olivet because we're going to need that uh, this evening, all right? Mount Olivet. They go on to say, the Olivet Discourse, write that down write down mount all of it and all of it discourse because these are obviously going to be important terms as we get into Matthew 24 it says takes its name from the place where Jesus delivered it so all of it discourse is taken from the name of the place mount all of it where Jesus delivered it the discourse is recorded in all three synoptic gospels are you ready write these references down Matthew 24 Mark 13 and Luke 21. Now stop right here. This is significant. Because I'm getting ready to explain to you how, compl- how all the controversy surrounding Matthew 24. Matthew 24 is very complicated. There's lots of disagreement. There's lots of controversy. So immediately we realize we may need Mark and Luke to make sure that we know everything said in this discourse so that we have a proper understanding. Does that make sense? That could, I'm not saying it's going to clarify everything, but it may be something that we have to look at. So we're going to be doing a lot of cross-referencing uh, between those three. This is the longest teaching discourse recorded in the Gospel of Mark. In the Gospel of Mark, there is no passage more problematic than the prophetic discourse of Jesus on the destruction of the temple. That's what one person says hear that again, that, uh, that, this is, that there is no passage in the Gospel of Mark more problematic than the prophetic discourse of Jesus on the destruction of the temple. The question posed by a form, by the form and content of the chapter and by its relationship to the Gospel as a whole are complex and difficult and have been the occasion of an extensive literature, meaning there have been lots of books written to try to figure this out. What is said here of of, math, of of Mark could be said of Matthew and Luke. In other words, you could say that this discourse, um, it, there is no passage more problematic in Matthew, Mark, and Luke than the discourse of Jesus on the destruction of the temple. No passage more problematic. That's saying a lot. There's a lot of difficult passages in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. To say this is the most problematic means there's something going on. Now, the minute I say that, people will be like, it's not problem. It's not that difficult. It's super simple. And, well, that, you know, I, well, I'm glad you've got it figured out. Maybe you should write a book. All right, here we go. Biblical scholars, now, this is very important. Anytime you find a passage that, like, whoa, nobody seems to agree, there's lots of complications, there's lots of difficulties, you can almost guarantee what someone's going to do. Someone's going to come along and go, doesn't belong. It's not authentic. That's almost a go-to because you don't know what else to do with it. There's just no way. It doesn't belong there. It just doesn't belong there. So let's, let's see what they have to say here. Biblical scholars have questioned the authenticity of the discourse, which has been called the small apocalypse. You may want to write that down. The, the, all, all three, all Matthew, Mark, and Luke, right. They're all referring to the same thing. That uh, they've questioned the aus- authenticity of the discourse and it's sometimes called what? Small apocalypse. Um, Vincent Taylor cites this theory which has been adopted by many critical scholars. The suggestion, now this is what they suggest. This is the theory about what actually happened here. Is that in anticipation Of the horrors of the siege of Jerusalem, some unknown Christian edited a small Jewish or Jewish Christian apocalypse as a kind of off-fly sheet to give encouragement and hope to the Christians of this day and incorporated therewith eschatological sayings of Jesus. So they're like, what someone's like, wait a minute, this whole 78D thing is really bad. Let me go write something. To try to encourage them and borrow and use language that would be referring to eschatology. So someone just kind of made it up. All right? So in other words, it wouldn't be really the words of Jesus. So made it Basically, to try to give encouragement. To try to give encouragement. All right? Falsify. And then claimed it was about Jesus. I guess maybe or... B- b- yeah, and then claimed that Jesus said it. Right, yeah, so... Would be lots of problems. So supposedly it was edited by a small Jewish or Jewish Christian uh, or, or some unknown Christian edited a small Jewish or Jewish Christian apocalypse as a kind. Con- so I guess it, it was they found a Jewish apocalypse and then they took it and edited it to make it look like it came from Jesus. But either way, so I guess they took it. So I guess in a sense we shouldn't say it's not not that they necessarily made it up. They found something that had been written that was kind of apocalyptic and said, oh, let's make this apply to the destruction of 70 AD and we'll give it to Jesus. So in other words, the original writing had nothing to do with the destruction of the temple. It it had to do with who knows what. We wouldn't know the context, which would make it really complicated, right? Okay, other, clear, other theories have claimed that this discourse is either completely inauthentic or reflects the work of a later redactor or editor who fused together different strands of an oral tradition that originated in the teachings of Jesus but not in any, not, not really found in the Gospels themselves. So like, maybe like a bunch of people heard a lot of things Jesus said and then just kind of edited them together. And just kind of put them together and, well, how do they really fit together? Do they're supposed to fit together and have all kinds of problems, all right? Now, we, we, can, we can go through and read a lot of these theories and talk about it, but the bottom line is, what, what is, this, what is, what is the probably the best thing we should do with that information? No. Keep it in mind. Why should we keep it in mind? Well, it indicates the difficulty of the passage. It indicates the difficulty. You don't come up with all of these theories if the passage is just easy to read, right? So you can dismiss them all day, but that by dismissing them, we're ignoring the fact that this is complicated. Because everybody wants to make it sound like, Matthew 24, it's not that hard. You know, it, no, obviously it is because there's all these theories going, this doesn't make any sense. This doesn't make any sense. This doesn't make any sense. So let's work on it. So I gave you some things to write down there at the beginning. What were some of the words I told you to write down? Mount Olivet? Olivet Discourse? And we we called, uh, I said, the Jewish Apocalypse, or Small Apocalypse. Okay, all right, you can have that one down, but the first two are important, all right? And the first two are important because this supposedly is what this discourse is called, Olivet Discourse, and the location from which it occurred. So let's read a little bit in the Bible dictionary about Mount Olivet just to see if there's anything in the description of Mount Olivet that could possibly be significant to understanding this discourse. I'm not saying there is. I'm not saying there isn't. I'm saying let's take a look at it to find out. All right. If you look up Mount of Olives in the Bible dictionary, it's on page 864. 864, All right? Okay. Everybody good to go? All right, let's see what we can find. A north to south ridge of hills, east of Jerusalem, where Jesus was betrayed on the night before his crucifixion. This prominent feature of Jerusalem's landscape is a gently rounded hill rising to a height of about 830 meters or 2,676 feet, overlooking the... All right, that's pretty significant, isn't it? I'll show you why it's pretty significant. Go to Matthew chapter 24, verse 1. Go to Matthew chapter 24, verse 1. And Jesus went out and... Departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? What things is he referring to? The temple. Verily I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? So, they, he walks out of the temple... They start talking about the temple. He's sitting on a Mount of olives, which overlooks the temple. All right. That at least places the temple as the focal point. Yes? The location places the temple, in a sense, as a focal point. And considering they're already talking about the temple, that makes it very interesting because he's overlooking it, right? So that means what's the focal point of this discourse? I think that would be fair. I think that... That, that that gives us at least, that, that's pretty important because about 95% of the evangel, evangelical world doesn't think the Teplah has anything to do with this discourse, okay? So, uh, as we, I, yesterday in the Bible study exercise, I was reading an article about biblical prophecy who, well, they seem to forget the 70 AD ever occurred, but okay. All right, so, there's the Mount of Olives. We can read a little bit more here, but that gives you a pretty good idea, yes? All right, and then they talk about ancient times, and they go through... You know, but I, th- I think I think we get we we get there. All right, um, there may be something else here, but I think that gives us the most important thing. So, what would be the other term we need to look up? All of it discourse. Of it discourse. Let's take a look at it. Nine twenty-four. You said nine twenty-four. All of it discourse. Jesus' discussion, here's the the entry, is everybody there? Olivet Discourse. Jesus' discussion on the Mount of Olives about the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of the world. Stop right here. This is significant. Because they add two events to the discussion, yes? What event do they add? And the end of the world. Now, very important thing to write in your notes is the Olivet Discourse about the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem and the end of the world? That's an important question everyone should write down. Is Matthew 24, or or should put it this way, is the Olivet Discourse about the destruction of the temple and the end of the world? If it's about both, If it's about both, what problems will we face? Which applies to which? Right? I mean, if the discourse applies to both, does every verse apply to both? That's going to be majorly problematic. Okay? So, that's the question. The Bible Dictionary made what kind of a statement there? It's interpretive and it's dogmatic. Just they just assert that's what it is. Now here again, here are the uh, places where the Olivet discourse is found. Matthew twenty four. They have from verse one all the way to twenty five forty six. They have all the way to twenty five forty six. I don't. I don't know. The, the, look at verse forty six of twenty five. So their, argument, so, their argument is that his discussion goes all the way to 2546. Now, why is that significant? One well, is a long discourse, and it may be the end, maybe there's parts later on in the discourse that could be very critical in interpreting the first part, right? Could, could, be, could it be an interpretive challenge? Yeah, I don't see. So I think in Matthew, would everyone agree that if you go from twenty-four one, right? Yeah. I, I, I'm just—I lost my. Uh, what happened here? What page is it? Nine twenty-four. Yeah, okay, my page turned, and I'm like, what happened? Okay. Um, so Matthew twenty-four one to twenty-five forty-six. Everybody just, just kind of scan it. Do you see any interruption? All right. Continue. Jesus seems to be talking all the way through, yes? So, that would mean for me to understand the Olivet Discourse would require me to understand everything from Matthew 24, 1 to 25, 46. That is significant. Everybody got that? Yeah, all of 24 and 25, okay? So, does that make sense? All right. Now... They say it also is recorded in uh, Mark 13, verses 1 through 37. Mark 13, 1 through 37. Do you see a, a possible issue here? How many verses in 24? Uh, 24 of Matthew 24? 51. How many verses in 25? Mark is a what? Edited, edited, edited version of it. Now, so what question should we have about the Mark passage? Does it contain information not found in the Matthew 24 passage? Has everybody got that? I think that's significant. I think we're, we're trying to do a fair... Well, I mean, if you have something longer and it's shorter... I mean, wouldn't that be edited? Like, if you have something longer and then you have something shorter. Well, I mean, Mark clearly left it out, right? Now, I'm not saying it wasn't done under the inspiration of the. Do I? I think the way he's trying to say is that he says the same things, but just in less words. Okay, possibly, but clearly he left things out. Now, I'm not saying it wasn't done under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I'm just saying clearly. He leaves a whole lot out. <laughs> okay. You count the difference in verses there. That's a significant amount. That's a significant amount. All right? Now, what does Luke do? Luke goes from chapter 21, verses 5 to 36. 5 to 36. So even less than Mark. All right. Now, what could be... This could be interesting. Well, actually, that wouldn't be interesting, and that would just confuse everybody. I'm not even going to mention that. Okay, I'm going to mention that. All right, I'll mention that. I mean, I got eight weeks to confuse everybody. I'm not going to start start now. Okay, but all right, right out the gate. Right out the gate. I mean, I've already thrown enough in at you. But okay, so we got three accounts of the same discourse, but radically different tellings of the discourse. Yes. So the most important thing we have to figure out is what's the difference in the discourses. Because if there's, because, and I'm not saying that it's going to be anything like, whoa, you know, oh, this is the revelation we needed. But if there is something different that is absolutely significant in interpreting all of them, we have to find it. Okay? Like anybody wants to start arguing with Matthew 24, we got to make sure that everything in those other passages, there's nothing going, wait a minute, that changes everything. Right? That's going to require some, clear, some serious cross-referencing work. Yes? All right, so keep that in mind. All right. What else do they say? In response to Jesus' prophecy that the temple would be destroyed, the disciples asked when this would occur and how they would know it was about to happen. Please note, what is he responding to? Jesus gives a prophecy that the temple is going to be destroyed and the disciples asked when, when this would occur and how would they know. Jesus is responding to those questions. The disciples believed that the temple would be destroyed at the end of the world when, among other things, Jesus would return. Stop right there. Why is that significant? Well, possibly, but why is it significant? Okay. right. This is very important. Remember at the beginning of the entry for the dictionary, they said it, this, this section is about the temple and the end of the world. And this guy right here is putting them together. Right? Is well, that same well I, what he's doing here, I think, is, I think is important, is he's possibly explaining why the end of the world is even being mentioned. Because in the disciples' mind, the destruction of the temple would occur at the end of the world. Now, why is that significant? that maybe this is not about the end of the world. The only reason the end of the world is being mentioned is because in the disciples' mind, the destruction of the temple is the end of the world. So in other words, the, the chapter may not be about the end of the world. It may be that they think it's about the end of the world and Jesus is answering, he's giving his response, but he's not necessarily saying, oh yeah, this is going to be the end of the world. Like, we, we infer, everyone infers that that's what it's about. Right? Okay, well, yeah, that, that's another thing we'll have to look at. But I just want you to see that if, if all that's happening here is some confused disciples going, hey, tell us when this is going to happen, and when is the end of the world? And Jesus is just like, okay, I'm going to tell you when this is going to happen. And everything he gives... It has nothing to do with the end of the world. It has everything to do with what happens at the destruction of the temple. Right? I, we have to at least consider this, yes? And why do we have to consider? Listen, this is so very important before we even proceed. Why is it so important to look at everything in light of 70 AD? Why is it so important to look at everything in this discourse in light of 70 AD? Why is it like absolutely critical to do that? Because it literally was destroyed. And the question is literally about the temple, and he's sitting on the Mount of Olives overlooking the temple. Yeah, that, and Jesus' prophecy was about the destruction of the temple. Right? So, everything, and, so, and because we know it literally happened, then before we start looking for something that hasn't happened, we're going to see how all of this relates to what has already happened. That's always the way to do biblical prophecy. If there's a prophecy, my first question is, has it already happened? If I can prove it's already happened, stop. Now, I'm not saying we're going to be able to prove that, but everyone else ignores it. Uh, Yesterday in the Bible study exercise I did, the whole article that we read, I read in the Bible study exercise, they quoted Matthew 24 I think five times or six times and not one time did they look at it in light of something already happening but in light of something to come. And you're like, what in the world? They never even mentioned 70 A.D. one time in the article. Because most, it just drives me crazy, but it's like everyone gets to Matthew 24 and like, what's 70 A.D.? Like, if you ever sit in a sermon and someone preaches on Matthew 24 and doesn't mention 70 A.D., that's probably a good sign that that church has got some serious issues. But I've heard, I can't even tell you how many sermons I've heard on Matthew 24 where they don't even mention 70 A.D. Well, that's not even coming close to doing biblical study in any way, shape, or form. All right? Does that make sense? All right? Now, where did we stop? So the, uh, the the disciples believed the temple would be the destroyed at the end of the world and among other things, Jesus would return. This is why Matthew records the two questions. When will these things, the destruction of the temple be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Yes, because they group all of it together. Does everybody understand that? The, in the disciples' mind, all of this has got to happen together. Now, what makes the Olivet discord difficult to understand is that Jesus intermingles his answers to these two questions. Now, once again, they're making an assumption. What's their assumption? That Jesus, that Jesus is answering when the end of the world is going to occur. But, but that's assuming that Jesus is doing that. It could be possible that Jesus is just like, I'm going to tell you when this is going to occur. But we are assuming, does Jesus always answer the questions in very straightforward ways? Absolutely not. Hey, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Go do this. And you're like, well, wait, Jesus, you just, you just told someone to work for eternal life. That makes absolutely no sense. So then we have to come along and go, well, he didn't really mean that. Right? So if we can give lots of examples well, Jesus, where, where Jesus answers a question and we're all kind of like going, what in the world? So I think we got to be careful here to assume that he's answering the end of the world question. He may just be answering the destruction of the temple question. Right. Possibly. I'm not saying, again, what am I doing with the Bible study exercise? I teach like I know some of it and I teach some of it like I don't know it because I try to get, the goal is to get people to actually participate in the Bible study exercises. All right. So here we go. The key to unraveling his answers is the repetition of the phrase take heed that's interesting they say this is the key to unraveling it i don't know if it's the key to unraveling it but go to matthew 24 let's do this this is going to take a few minutes but let's do this you ready All right let's go through matthew 24 verse 1 to chapter 25 what verse 46 our 51? fifty-one, 46, 25. our twenty-five fifty-one. Okay, all right, right. Oh, 25. twenty-five forty-six. That's where it is. Okay, go from twenty-four uh, one, all the way to the last place in twenty-five. You can skim it. Write down every reference where the phrase "take heed" occurs. Just write down the reference. Every place where "take heed" occurs. Write down every reference. And when you're done, say Amen. If you have an electronic device, feel free to cheat. Just one reference in, in twenty-four? And nine and twenty-five? Okay. All right. okay. So we're we're doing the cheating. Okay. All right. I'm joking, I'm joking. Okay. Oh true, that could be that could be that could make it difficult. All right. Okay, only once in 24. Everyone seems to agree only once in 24. And nobody finds any in 25. Okay, everyone go to... I'm still looking. Okay. Okay. I I just like to say you're cheating. Okay. All right. Does everyone agree only once in Matthew 24 and 25? Okay, go to Mark 13. Go to Mark 13. And what are we looking for in Mark 13, verses 1 through 37? Write down the references, though. Write down the references. Someone write down the references. Well, they can... Someone have them written down. Okay, write down the references. because when when something makes a claim like this then our job is to is to look it up and see All right, tell me when you have them all. Tell me when you have them all. All right, we have four. All right, so, total, so So, at this point, we have a total of five references to take heed, yes? So far? Now we need to go to Luke. Let's go to Luke. 21, uh, 5 through 36. Luke 21, 5 through 36. How many times does take heed occur there? 21, 5 through 6. How many times do we see Take Heed here? 21, 5, two, I said 26. I two. 36. Two. 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 Total. Okay, to, uh, total of nine. How many, okay, one and... If we got nine total, we're missing a bunch. Okay. But well, we're looking for the, for the English translation. Let's go with the English. All right. So, one in, tw- in Matthew 24 to 25. How many in Mark? Four. That's total five. And how many in Luke? Two. Now, immediately, what does that should make you stop and go? Stop and ask. Wait a minute. Mark has more take heeds than everybody else. Is his take. Why is his take-heeds different than their take-heeds? And is he telling us to take heed of something that may be the key to un- un- of re- resolving all of the difficulties because the Bible dictionary says the phrase take-heed is the key of unraveling all of the mystery. So let's go through every reference. Where's the first reference occur? Matthew 24, which I find the most ironic and funny and humorous thing in the entire world that... This whole section, this whole discourse in Matthew 24 begins with, as soon as he starts the discord and Jesus answered, this is his answer, remember, about the temple. And he said unto them, verse 4, 24, 4, Take heed that no man deceive you. Now that I find, I find that humorous because it's a chapter where it's a discourse where there's so much confusion and so much disagreement, but it begins with Jesus saying, make sure no one deceives you. Now, of course, specifically, he's telling them not to be deceived about the coming of the destruction of the temple. I mean, I mean, and even if it says the end of the world, immediately you have to go, well, they're not. They obviously haven't seen the end of the world, so they didn't have any anything. He tells them about the end of the world is absolutely useless to them, right? So everyone forgets that, right? Hey, tell us about the end of the world. I'll tell you all about it. You're not going to need it, but okay, I'll tell you all about it. But they don't definitely need to know about the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. All right, that's going to be closer to them. So the first take heed is what? Don't be deceived. Would everyone agree? The first take heed is don't be deceived. I don't know if that helps me unravel anything, but okay. All right. There's none, there's none other in Mar- um, Matthew 24 or 25. All right. Go to Mark. 13.5. All right. Let me go. Okay. Mark 13.5. All right. Let me just get there. Take heed, lest any man deceive you. All right? So, you can put these two together. We have two. Take heed in order not to be deceived. I think that's pretty interesting. Yes? Okay. Where's the next one? 13.9. But take heed to yourselves... For they shall deliver you up to councils and in the synagogues you shall be beaten and you shall be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them. So what's the next take heed? Take heed to yourselves because persecution is coming. And that persecution, everyone wants to immediately run to that. (gasps) Disney made a movie that makes, that Christians don't like. We're being persecuted. That's, That's not what this is referencing, okay? This is referencing the disciples being persecuted. And do we read about this persecution taking place in the book of Acts? Does that occur before 70 AD? Hmm, interesting. Right? Yes? Everybody wants to grab that and apply it to us. Well, wait a minute. I think there's... And and again, persecution... Well, let's just leave it right there for now, okay? Okay, next verse... 23, but take heed, behold, I have foretold you all things. Right? What does he want them to take heed to? The things that he's telling them. All right. I don't know if that's going to help me unravel all of this, but okay. All right, what's the next one? Verse 33, take ye heed, watch and pray, for you know not when the time is. Take heed and pray. So what here is the thing is to take heed and pray because you don't know when it's going to happen. Right? In other words, what does he not give them? A date. Now, even if if you say this is a reference to, even if you say this is a reference to the second coming, the point is, he does not give them a date even for 70 AD, does he? No. He doesn't give them a date. So take heed. You don't know the time. All right, next. Luke 21.8. And there's only one in Luke, right? Or two, okay. Luke 21.8. Take heed that you be not... Deceived, for many shall come in my name saying, I am Christ and the time draweth near. Go ye not therefore after them. We're going to put this uh, take heed of not being deceived separate because this is take heed to not be deceived by what? This is a specific not be deceived by. False Christ, anyone claiming to be Christ. Right? Do not do, be deceived by anyone claiming to be Christ. That's a specific one. All right, next. 34, and take heed to yourselves lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and cares of this life and so that the day come upon you unawares. What's this take heed? Take heed to yourself for what? That you don't become distracted, that you don't see what's happening. May not be the same Greek word, but... Okay. All right. We could, we could take note to there, but for now, we'll just go with this and we'll, we'll dig into that a little further later on. All right. So if you look at all of these take does any of this offer any help? I don't know how this is supposedly fixes everything, but let's go see what the Bible dictionary has to say and how this supposedly fixes everything. Oh, all of those take are important. Right. Think of it this way. Are all of those take relevant to us? They are relevant to us because what are the principles? Let's go through them. Take heed that you're not deceived. Is that true of every generation and every decade and every era? Yes. What's the second take heed? Do not be deceived. Right. That the first, well, the first one is take heed, don't be deceived. The next one is take heed of yourselves. About persecution. Our persecution is coming. Third, take heed of the things that we always have to take heed of what Christ tells us. Next. Take heed and watch and pray because we don't know when. And then the next take heed is beware of false Christ. And then the last one is don't be distracted. Don't be overcome with all the distractions that you're not paying any attention to the things of God. All of those are great spirit. We, in fact, you could preach all of those take heeds and it could be a great sermon. But what we're, we're not interested in doing that, which could be a distraction, right? So I'm trying to keep myself from not preaching each one. But the reason uh, these are uh, why we're looking at them is because the Bible dictionary made a claim about them. And what did the Bible dictionary what does the Bible dictionary claim? The key to unraveling his answers is the repetition of the key phrase, take heed. The disciples' first question was When will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? Jesus began by saying, Take heed that no one deceives you. Then he describes the events leading up to the temple's destruction. Now stop right here. They focus here on Mark. And they say that in Mark 13 verses 6 through 22 is all about the destruction of the temple. So go ahead and look at Mark really quick. They, they, They jumped away from Matthew 24 relatively quick, which is interesting. Okay, why do they go away from Matthew twenty-four? Okay, but they go to Mark. All right. Okay, they say Mark thirteen verses six to what? Twenty-two is all about the destruction of the temple. So, what's the answer? We should, what's the question we should ask next? Why did they stop in twenty-two? What happens in verse twenty-three that changes their mind? Another take heed. Ah, do you see what they're doing? They're using the phrases take heed" and mark as their outline. Now, what hermeneutical reason would you do that? What are they, what are they, what are they grasping onto? What are they grasping onto? A repeated word. So they take a repeated word and outlining the section based off the repeated word. What's the problem with doing this? Well, they had to go to Mark to do it because it doesn't happen in Matthew. So how can you just artificially say this is where the destruction of the temple stops because in Mark, the next take heed occurs here, but the next take heed doesn't happen in Matthew. So how in the world are you... This, This is a weird hermeneutical approach. Do what? And there's so much more in Matthew. So that's weird. What's what's that next verse 23 where it says, take heed? It says, take heed about what? So they're saying, hey, I've told you all things about, in other words, this is how they're reading it. I've told you all things about the destruction of the temple. Next. But that they're ignoring the other ones. All right, let's see what else they have to say. This is very interesting, seeing how people try to find how to handle this. All right. Uh, Mark 13, 4 began by saying, Take heed that no one deceives you. Uh, or, and then Mark 13, 5. Then he describes the events leading up to the temple's destruction. Verses 6 through 22. Then he said, But take heed, I have told you all these things beforehand. Mark 13, 23. By repeating the phrase, these things, he provides a conclusion to the first answer. The key note in this first answer is the warning, take heed. There will be persecutions, wars and famines, false prophets and false messiahs, all of which will lead up to the destruction of Jerusalem. And they have 13, 14 through 23. But despite all these woes, the disciples must take heed because the end of the world is not yet. Mark 13, 6 through 23 is therefore the answer to the question of when the temple will be destroyed. Furthermore, it is an accurate picture of the havoc that existed in Jerusalem during the Roman siege of A.D. 70 when the city and the temple were finally destroyed. All right, now let's stop right here. This is important. Okay, everybody ready? This is thinking caps on and you're going to need to take some notes here. All right. Everybody ready? Okay. According to them. And we're going to remember what I always like to do. Agree. I like to agree because at least they're trying to provide a framework. I think it's weird that they think the whole way to interpret this is Mark. Mark to them is the key. Forget Matthew. We're going to go to Mark. Now, I understand why you would want to go to Mark, because at least you're like, oh, take heed, take heed. Oh, boom, there it is. Now, they group the first take heed as being the destruction of the temple, and they have it verses 6 to 23, yes? Or 6 to 22. Okay. Yes. Right. Now, here's what I need you to do. I want you to look through verses 6 through 22, and I want you to write down every sign that they say refers to the destruction of the temple. All right. Write each sign out. Let's go through them. We'll just go through it together. Everybody ready? All right. Mark 13, verse 6 is the take heed. Yes? Or 5 is the take heed. All right. Okay. Well, yeah, well, because they, 6 to 22, 5 sets it off. Is kind of the book, uh, book cover. Oh, there's one in 9? All right. They just ignore that one. That is fascinating. Okay, I didn't even catch that. Good catch. Alright, but we'll play along. Alright, so the first the first sign is v- verse six. Yes? Okay. What's the many shall come in my name saying I am Christ. Okay. So the first sign, the first sign is many will come in his name claiming to be Christ? Uh, or just call false Christ. False Christ. So the first sign is a false Christ right, everybody got that, is a false Christ, right, oh, I, I didn't even realize what they did, I'm glad you caught that, Twilight. that, that is, that, that's, that's even more irritating, but okay, I'm going to play along, I like to play along, so now, the first sign is a false Christ, second, you shall hear, you shall hear you okay, rumors of war, right, rumors of war, okay, Rumors of war, which everyone always grabs and apply to things that happen today. It makes no sense to me. You know how many rumors of war there have been since 33 AD? <laughs> Give me a break. That, that, that would become what kind of a sign? Meaningless. Like when you've got Christian friends who are like, well, the Bible says rumors of war. You, go, you realize how utterly meaningless that statement is. There's been rumors of war. There's been hundreds of thousands of rumors of war since 33 AD. That means the sign is absolutely useless today. But it would have meant something between 33 and 70. That's a short amount of time. And obviously, as Rome is marching towards Jerusalem, I think the rumors are going to get loud and you're going to be like, I think I see what's coming. We're all going to die, okay? All right, so so we got false Christ, rumors of war. Next. Okay, let's go with this. So we have rumors of war, and then we basically have nation against nation. We have war. Agreed? You want to separate those? Is, Is everybody there like that? Okay. What's after nation against nation? Earthquakes. I have earthquakes. Write down earthquakes. Now, let me just show you how utterly ridiculous that one is, if we apply it to today, because uh, someone sent to me, if I can find it, yeah, between 1900 and 2015, there have been more than 10,000 strong earthquakes around the world, yeah, that's just from 1900 to 2015, 10,000. So when someone when there's an earthquake and someone says that's a sign of the end times, you're absolutely, I'm sorry, you're drinking. When you've got 10,000 just between 1900 and 2015, the sign means absolutely nothing. It'd be like the sign of the end of the world is wind. Well, the wind's blowing every day. It, okay, right? It would mean nothing, right? It would be meaningless. Right? So, so what do we have? Let's go through them again. The first sign. False Christ, second sign, rumors of war, third, war, fourth, earthquakes, fifth, famines. I mean, there's been famines forever, right? Forever. So we got famines. Then they put trouble. Okay, we just say, the world's been filled with trouble since forever. Okay, that's not helpful. Okay, is there any more? Oh, well, leading up to 70 AD, all these things would make, a, that would make profound sense because that's a short amount of time, right? And you're like, boom, there's an earthquake. Boom, there's a famine. Boom, there's war. Boom, there's, okay, you'd be like, man, because the next thing you know, it's 50 AD, it's 60. I mean, that's a short period of time. Every sign would be magnified a hundredfold, right? I'm just saying after you get past 70 AD, after about a hundred years, they stop meaning anything, okay? Okay, what else after uh, trouble? Okay, is that the last signs? Okay, it's the last in verse 8, okay. Then in verse 9, stop right here. This is where their hermeneutic begins to fall apart. Their argument is the first take heed and the take heed in 23 offers the bookmark. They ignore the take heed in the middle. Okay, but well, let's continue their signs. Okay, take heed of what in verse 9? Uh, persecution. persecution. All right, so write down persecution as a sign. Okay, well, they will, but I'm just saying, well, well I'm going to read that in a minute. I'm just saying that their initial argument is that it's, book, the, the, it's bookend. That's their initial argument. I know they're going to explain it. I'll read their explanation after we work through it. Okay. All right. Everybody got the persecution? All right? Again, how long has per- Christians been persecuted? Yeah. So, again, it's a sign that doesn't mean anything today. It would have meant something between 33 and 70 AD because the book of Acts is all about persecution, right? Okay, so what's after persecution? Ooh. We just run to a first issue. According to the Bible Dictionary, all of this is about 70 A.D. And they say the gospel must be preached among all nations. Go ahead and write that one down. gospel must be preached to all nations. This one is our first big problem. Yeah, yeah, I'll read what they say in a minute, but I'm just saying for us stopping and thinking about it, we have to ask ourselves, wait a minute, was this fulfilled before 70 A.D.? Now, we've tried to answer this question in the past. We looked at maps, biblical maps, and we're like, well, I don't know. Did Paul go to every known area? How do we interpret this, right? So they say that it was fulfilled before 70 A.D. If it was Okay, well, then that really, I mean, a lot of people will say, see, this is the part that applies to the second coming. They just applied it to the first coming. Now, it sounds like in the dictionary, they're going to also say there's a second coming. But then it's like, so wait, so it was fulfilled, but it wasn't fulfilled. Like, or it was, it's got to be fulfilled twice. Like, why does it say it's going to be done twice? That becomes really problematic in your hermeneutic, but okay. All right, what's the next sign? The gospel is going to preach everywhere. What's the next sign? So the promise here that God's going to tell you what to say. He's going to give you the words to say. All right, that's okay. Okay, there's going to be, a, there's going to be betrayal among, within families. Going to be betrayal within families. All right, what verse are we at? 12, 12. 12. man, we got a long ways to go here. Okay, we got, we're trying to hurry, okay. What's the next sign? Hated of all men my going to be hated. So hatred from the world. Hatred from the world. What's the next verse, or next sign? Okay, abo- uh, the abomination of desolation. Just write that down. Yeah. Abomination of desolation is the next sign. Abomination of desolation. They're they're saying this is all all points to what? This is all for the destruction of the temple. You'll see why I'm doing this, okay? You'll see why in a minute, all right? Next. Okay, let let, let me summarize this one. They're obviously going to see the danger. When you see it, leave, all right, so the sign is they're going to see the danger, leave, flee. Wait a minute. This goes back to the discussion we've been having on the couple of weeks or the uh, podcast. You, if you're under a situation where you're in threat, it's okay to leave. Okay, it's okay to leave. Right, we won't get into that whole discussion uh, uh, right now, but it's very applicable to the podcast we've been doing the last couple of days. All right, all right. What's next? Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Okay. Pray that it's not winter time. <laughs> okay. pray pray that that is That's a weird verse. Pray that it's not the winter time, all right. I, I don't know really how that's a sign, but okay, just put down pray that it's not winter, right? Okay. <laughs> pray that it ain't the winter, all right? <laughs> okay. Next. This one is where it's like, I don't know why they're applying this to 70 AD. What verse is this? See, we're we're still within their their framework. So, according to them, it's going to be worse than it's ever been on the face of the earth. That is hard to even comprehend. Why? It's been pretty bad in some cases. Okay. Well, let me let me start back. There was Mr. and Mrs. Noah. And everyone died. That's pretty bad. 70 AD wasn't that bad. The whole earth wasn't destroyed. Second, the temple had been destroyed before. So the destruction of the temple can't be the worst thing that's ever been because the temple has been destroyed in the past. That one is weird. Okay? All right, what's next? Go ahead and you put that, though, worse than the world's ever seen. What's next? All right. God shortens the day or nobody would be saved. That's how bad it's going to be. Well, wait a minute. What do you mean? He shortened the days that no one would be saved. No obviously, no one in Jerusalem would be saved because they're applying it to the destruction of the temple. All right. God shortens the days. All right. What do we have next? We'll put, we'll put claims of Christ appearing. Okay? False claims of Christ's appearance. All right? What else do we have? What verse are we in? That's it. All right. I know that took a long time. Here's why I did that. This is from, this is from a, a source that is saying that the chapter deals with two things, the destruction of the temple and the end of the world, yet they just put a large portion of those signs as all being to the destruction of the temple. If that is true, they've taken care of a good portion of all the signs, have they not? So in, here's, so whenever you get into an argument with someone, you're like, well, here's a source that says it's about both, and they apply most of the signs to 70 AD. Now let's see what else they have to say about how they've done this, because I do believe it appears, at least on the surface, there's a hermeneutical issue. Let's read what they have to say here. Everybody ready? All right. I'm going to take off the cover to the Bible dictionary. All right. The keynote and the first answer is the warning, take heed. There will be persecutions, verses 9 through13, wars and famines, uh, verses 13, seven through8, false prophets and false Messiahs 13:6, all of which will lead up to the destruction of Jerusalem, 13,14 through23. But despite all of these woes, the disciples must take heed because the end of the world is not yet, 13:7. Mark thirteen six through 23 is therefore the answer to the question of when the temple will be destroyed. Furthermore, it is an accurate picture of the havoc that existed in Jerusalem during the Roman siege of A.D. 70 when the city and the temple were finally destroyed. Jesus' prophecy was therefore fulfilled in the years leading up to the temple's destruction, although some would say it is also a picture of what will be fulfilled again at the end time. Now, what do they not explain here? Well, remember, their whole structure was off the takeeds. They don't explain. They acknowledge there's another taikid. They don't explain why that's not the bookend. Two, they acknowledge that all of these were fulfilled leading up to 70 AD, but then they say that some would argue that these are going to be fulfilled two times. Well, every verse is going to be fulfilled two times, that makes no sense because we've already demonstrated some of those signs would have no meaning for anyone today. Earthquake, famine, pestilence, war, that, those, that don't mean anything to anyone today. Oh, there's another earthquake. Jesus is about to return. This is, this is earthquake 10,000 and, you know, whatever. Give me a break. Like, you just keep saying it for every earthquake and sooner or later you'll be right. I mean, like, it just... It, it makes no sense. So their their whole argument is that the take heed explains it because the one take heed is the front cover of the book and the other take heed is the back end of the book and that book is all about the temple. The only problem is there's a take heed right in the middle of it. That's a that's a weird approach, is it not? Question: What signs take place? At, so the first heed is in verse five. The second heed is in verse nine. Is there any question that the that all the signs before the second take heed are clearly could be applied to seventy A.D. only? Would everyone agree that all the signs between six and nine or six and eight would all could be up, explained to take to seventy A.D. only? All right. What's the next sign after verse nine or? What's verse 9? In verse 9, it so, so says, deliver okay. Deliver, deliver say, so, well, that would all apply to 70. See, so that doesn't even work. Yeah. So I was hoping maybe that'd take heed as the bookmark or as is the, is the back cover. It doesn't work. So for them to say that figures everything out, that is the most confusing. That, that does, that, is that any help? I don't see it as any help. Let me finish this, all right? And then we'll have to stop, all right? The disciples had assumed that the temple would be destroyed only at the end of the world. They were mistaken. And Jesus said that despite all these woes leading up to the temple's destruction, when it happens, the end of the world still will not be in sight. Therefore, in Mark 13, 24 through 27, he answers the next logical question, what signs will precede the end of the world? So according to him, according to them, uh, Mark 13, 24 through 27 are the signs for the end of the world. All right. What signs are listed in 20? Well, no, we don't have time to do that. We don't have time to do that. Let me just read the rest of this. I, okay, I was going to get all excited. All right. Yeah, that, that's okay. We, we don't have time. We're already over time. But so let me read this. All right. Um, the phrase, in those days, is a common Old Testament expression used when speaking of the end times. In those days, there will be signs in the heavens, and, and then Jesus, the Son of Man, will come. We must be prepared for his coming, and must not be taken by surprise. In Mark's gospel, Jesus remarked that no one except the Father knows exactly what, when that day Christ's return at the end of time will be. Therefore, we must be on our guard, Matthew and Luke, close and. Matthew and Luke close close with further warnings to wait carefully in anticipation. Trying to read that too quick. So, interesting enough, what do they do with the Olivet discourse? What's their approach to the problem? Ignore ignore Matthew, ignore Luke, go to yeah Matthew and Luke, go to Mark, look at the one take heed in verse six or five, and go to the take heed in verse. 23, and say that that all is the signs for 70 A.D., then start in verse 24 to 27. Those are the signs for the end of the world. See, it's not difficult. But they completely ignore the take heed in verse 9. Yeah, yeah. They, they, they. And it, all the way to 37 is the end of the discourse. So they just throw out the rest of it. They, they, they identified all the way to 37 as being the discourse, right? Yes? Yeah. So they give the 30, but they stop basically the discourse in 27. <laughs> like, I don't know what that is. Well, they mention it, but I'm saying that they, stop the, they really stop the discourse right there, and they don't go any, into any great detail. So that doesn't really answer the question. So what have we gained from our work tonight? That one approach is go to Mark, <laughs> create a weird outline based off the take but ignore one of the take-heeds, and then try to claim that half of it, I, well, I won't even say half, part of it is 70 A.D., the other part is the end of the world and ignore some of the verses that don't seem to fit with 70 AD because there's some verses that don't seem to fit with 70. The gospel is going to preach an all-known world. If you can pull that off, okay. Well, they well, that they oh yeah they, don't, yeah, they don't even mention the one in th- They just, I don't know what. That is some arbitrary nonsense. All right. Now, what have we gained from this? I'm going to make sure you understand what we just gained from this. We now have a list of signs that one source applies to 70 AD. That is significant. Because when we start going through these signs trying to figure it out, we know at least some people believe all of those signs can apply to 70 AD. That would be a good number of most of them, right? That, if, we can fit, if we can make all of them fit 70 AD, we've pretty much resolved a good portion of the mystery. I just don't know if we can make them all. Which one stand out as the most problematic in that list? The gospel being preached to the world. What's the, is there any other one that's problematic? The worst affliction ever. Those are two that are majorly problematic. The, yeah, Considering everything I read in the Old Testament, this would be hard for me to say that this is the worst affliction ever. So those are two that are problematic. But pre- please note, the problems show up in a passage that some say all apply to 70 A.D. Even by those who argue part of it deals with the destruction of the world. Like, it's like even people who say this is not all about 70 A.D., they even have problems trying to figure out which part applies to 70 A.D. and which part applies to the world. Because, But why, why do you think they included those? Why do you think they included those in 70 A.D.? No, that, because they committed themselves to the outline of the take heeds. This is what happens when, you, when, you, when your hermeneutic becomes controlled by your outline. When your outline controls your hermeneutic, you've, I've got to make it fit the outline. I've got to make it fit the... You don't make things fit the outline. The outline fits the text. You don't make the text fix your outline. Your outline is not the infallible pope. Your outline is supposedly simply to grab what's there and gives an observation. This is so irritating. All right? So we've got two signs that we have problems with. Okay? There's two signs. Okay? The, The gospel preached everywhere, and this is the worst affliction ever. So then we'll have to look at Matthew and Luke, see where they, and we'll see where do they put the affliction. These are these two things in a line of all their signs, because I bet you the signs are not even anywhere in the same order. And if they're not in the same order, guess what? If you say, well, these verses all apply to 70 AD, but then you've got some verses in Matthew account where you group them that are in a different part in Mark, then that's going to become impossible to group them together. Does everybody just see the hermeneutical problem we just came up with? Does that make sense to everyone? Yeah. Right? No, they didn't even bother with Matt. They just threw out Matthew and Luke. Because it, you know how maddening it would get to try to figure that out? Well, wait a minute. These verses are all about 70 AD. But wait a minute. Matthew mentions something that Mark mentions. Oh, no. That doesn't work. Harmony of the Gospels. Yeah. Okay. So, there you have it. There, there's a great evening of, of study with no answers, okay? But, oh, but I want you to see, now you see why that book started off by saying this passage is extremely difficult, maybe the most difficult, and saying that why some people will like. It's not authentic. It, just don't, it's not, it doesn't belong there. Someone, someone took something written by someone else and just edited it. It's just, it's, we don't even know what's going on here. Okay. Yeah, you can see why some people do that. I wish I had an easy answer, but I don't. Right? So there we have it. Um, there you go. Work on up uh, for those listening online who are participating in the Bible study exercise. Twyla. Chapter Summary Method, Matthew 24. Chapter Summary Method, Matthew 24. Well, you, you, we'll just—we got eight weeks, so this work on twenty-four now, okay? And like now, but you're going to have the mark passage in your brain, so you'll be like, "Well, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait," and then you'll see. All right, all right. Well, let's pray. Lord, God, we come before you this evening. We want to understand this passage. We understand we have a mountain of difficulties in front of us. Let us not get discouraged with the difficulties but enjoy the process of trying to figure out what you are telling us in this passage or what you told someone in the past and what we can learn from that. Just give us the desire to study and the desire to figure this out. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...